1: Hello. Is the delivery drone just around the corner?
2: When it comes into sight, the person who's ordered the goods, they enter a PIN code to accept delivery, and the drone hovers above them and lowers the product to them.
1: Bruce Schneier talks about his new book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. So these computers have hands and
0: feet. They can affect the physical world. So computer security becomes a matter of
1: life and death and a new innovation for disposing of human waste on Mount Everest.
3: They've basically engineered this product that will use solar panels to create heat in the reactor.
1: I'm Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent, and you're listening to Babbage from Economist Radio. But first, when drones first came to public attention, there were many fantastic and imaginative ideas of how they would revolutionise our lives. Some, such as surveying, aerial photography, and law enforcement, have come true. But one in particular has not the promise of drones being used for household deliveries. To discuss why and look at how this could be about to change, I'm joined by Paul Markilli, the Economist's Innovation Editor. Hello, Paul. Hi. So, Paul, why has it taken such a long time and why has progress been so slow for delivery drones?
2: Well, it's not a technological problem. People have delivering goods, if the drone can carry the goods and is big enough and powerful enough. The problem is that regulators have been rather cautious about drones. And so the rules really have prevented drones being used near buildings, flying over the top of people, and particularly flying out of sight. Well, the whole point of having a drone is that it's autonomous, it can fly out of sight. So operators have had them on a short lease, Uh, Hence, uses such as um, observation and aerial photography, you can keep them within the view of the operator. But if you wanted to deliver a parcel to somebody four, five, six kilometres away, it's going to disappear. You're not going to be able to see it. And basically, drone operators have not been allowed to do that under the present rules used in many countries.
1: Let's just quickly talk about which countries we mean. I'm presuming we are talking about the US and uh, Europe. Is that roughly
2: right? And many other countries around the world similarly have restrictions like that. But operations have got going and slowly we're starting to see exemptions being made. And that's what's happening now. And it's happening in a number of places.
1: So tell us a little bit about some of those exemptions.
2: Well, one nice example is in Iceland, in Reykjavik, in the capital, where AHA, a delivery company, is using a drone to deliver goods for retailers and restaurants. And that includes fast food as well.
1: So this drone is flying through the city streets of Reykjavik and do you know whether people have had any kind of problems with it? Because that's one of the objections, isn't it? That people sort of don't want drones around.
2: Well, it didn't start like that. It started off just flying things across a big bay that divides the city. Now, that meant they could take things from one side to the other in four minutes as opposed to a 20-minute drive around the outside. But it was a kind of sub-delivery system. So an operator would fly it from one side and then other people would pick it up the other side and deliver the goods onto their destination. But it was obviously useful now they've extended that to 13 set routes and have recently gained permission to fly 700 meters away from those fixed routes to actually drop things off in people's back gardens if they want on a line providing those people are pre-registered and have the agreement of their neighbors so you've got to have the people around you agreeing to the fact that a drone may come buzzing over and lower something on a line into your garden. Gordon.
1: And now these drones are not being piloted by humans, or are they? Or is it sort of a mixture of both? How is it actually? How is the piloting actually
2: working? There is no piloting. There's nobody there with a, like a radio control model unit. No, the the operator puts the goods into the drone, presses a button on a handheld device, which sets off, and the drone flies using GPS coordinates alone to where it's got to go. It has multiple backup systems to make sure it's accurate and reliable. And when it comes into sight, the person who's ordered the goods. They've already had a message to say it's on its way and they can look at an app on their phone to see that it's coming. And then they enter a PIN code to accept delivery and the drone hovers above them and lowers the product to them.
1: And have there been any kind of, has it all been going fine so far? How long has this company been doing this, by the way?
2: Well, they've been at it for about a year, but only just recently have they started to do this much more ambitious, you know, taking taking goods to you back garden. They've had really no problems at all. And it's because they've had no problems that the regulators have become increasingly more relevant. Relaxed about them flying out of sight and also doing deliveries to rear gardens. But you must add that Reykjavik isn't, you know, it's not Manhattan. It's not central London. It's quite a sort of spread out city, a low rise city. There's space for these things to fly along routes that aren't crowded and aren't congested. And so really, I think it's these more sort of rural, out-of-the-way, slightly low-density places where I think we'll see other drone deliveries take off first all they do in big cities.
1: Is that the case for the other cases that you looked at, that they are kind of in more rural settings?
2: Indeed. Um, one in Singapore that's going to get off the ground shortly um, will be delivering uh, supplies to merchant ships offshore. Um, in Africa, DHL have been testing a system to deliver drugs to a clinic in uh, Lake Victoria.
1: So we're seeing these examples in remote locations, but they, you know, I think the, the sort of sci-fi-ish dream is that the drone shows up on your windowsill in your high-rise in New York and drops off your takeaway or your pizza or what have you. Is that going to happen?
2: There's no reason why it couldn't if you had all the necessary systems to navigate the canyons of Manhattan. But, you know, there's flight restrictions over cities like that. You can't fly helicopters or airplanes that close. So, you know, they're, they're very strictly controlled anyway and for good reason. The other one is, um, is it economically feasible? Because in Reykjavik, the typical distance that a pizza will be delivered is something like seven kilometers. Well, in Manhattan, you could do it on a bicycle because it's much closer. So it's much, much simpler probably not to use drones in those situations.
1: That's interesting because when you look at China, I know um, that uh, one of the big e-retailers there, JD, has been doing this for at least a year or more, doing the same kind of following a GPS route. Is China different?
2: No, not really. It's just a little bit of regulatory arbitrage going on with some countries thinking, well, you know, maybe if we get ahead of the field here, we develop a more useful drone economy. And certainly that was the case in Iceland.
1: And Uber has just this week said that it is planning to offer drone delivery by 2021. And you've got to presume they mean in big cities or they're not going to make an awful lot of money out of this. Is, th- is that realistic?
2: Well, I think they'll be doing it. Lots of people will be doing it because the technological investment is not huge and it's showing that it does work.
1: But for now, rural areas and uh, no, no drones flying through the skyscrapers just yet.
2: Not just yet, through skyscrapers, but definitely if you're out in the sticks, then that may be the way you'll get your pizza in future. Paul, thanks very much for coming on. Pleasure.
1: Next up, Bruce Schneier is an internationally renowned security technologist, author, and fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. He spoke to The Economist's deputy editor, Tom Standage, about his most recent book. Bruce, welcome to Babbage. Uh, thanks for having me. Your new book is
4: called Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. Now, you, you admit very early on in the book that the title is hyperbole, but what is dangerous about hyperconnectivity?
0: It's less hyperconnectivity and more physical agency. We're moving into a world where computers can do things It's not just about redsheets and databases and Word documents. It's about thermostats and power plants and cars. So these computers have hands and feet. They can affect the physical world. So computer security becomes a matter of life and death, of property damage. And that's really what I'm talking about. What happens when computers have the ability to affect the world in a direct physical manner?
4: You refer in the book to this idea of two paradigms, which is that the way that cars and airplanes and systems like that that can do us physical harm are secured is a sort of safe first-time approach. There are quite tight rules about how they're allowed into the world, whereas with computer security, we have this kind of release it and then patch it later approach. So what happens when those two approaches collide?
0: Oh, We don't know because it's just happening. And, and this is important to understand. We get security from our computers not because they're designed properly the first time, but because we are always patching. When you get to the world of dangerous things, we more have a do-it-right-the-first-time mentality. Think of cars or airplanes or pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of upfront testing and certification. It's a very slow process because getting it wrong could be fatal. What I'm looking at is what happens when these paradigms collide. What happens when this notion of get security through the agility of patching Collides with get security through the premeditated steps of certification and testing. Right, so, is the result that it'll take two years of certification before there's a new version of your iPhone operating system? Because now your iPhone operating system controls medical devices and your thermostat. Or are we going to have to bring agility to the next level where even an hour or a day of a hacker can crash your car, is too much. And we don't know. So an example, you could look at uh, patches for cars. Uh, 2014, one of the major major auto manufacturers had to recall 1.4 million cars because of a software vulnerability. And the only way to patch it was to bring it into a dealer. Tesla, because they designed their system for the computer age, downloads patches to your car overnight while you sleep, and they automatically get implemented, right? So we're going to need to figure that out moving forward. Okay. The Economist, obviously, we're big fans of
4: markets and market-based solutions. So what about the idea that markets can fix this provided companies are penalized
0: for insecurity? Well, the penalization is going to be extra market. The penalization will be through regulation. The problem is that at the lower consumer level, uh, no one cares, so how do we apply the discipline of the market to the makers of these insecure devices? In a lot of ways, you can't because the vulnerabilities tend to be externalities. These devices are built low cost, offshore by third parties. They don't have security teams associated with them, unlike your phone or your computer. So there really isn't the ability to write patches or receive patches. Right? The uh, home router that you have uh, is also unpatchable. And this is important. The way you secure your home router when there's a vulnerability is you throw it away and buy a new one. That's the market solution. So if we want the market to solve this, we need to increase the costs of a vulnerability. And we do that through government penalties. And once we instill penalties, then I think the market will figure out solutions. But as long as the penalties for insecurity are so low... The market's going to produce cheap devices that are insecure, just like it's doing today. Okay. So we've got more devices that are
4: being connected, which can potentially hurt us in new ways. The old approach with patches doesn't sort of scale to this. Markets aren't going to fix it on their own. So that's a problem. What do we
0: do about it then if these existing approaches don't work? So I spent a lot of time about this in my book because it's always easy to point to the problems and a lot harder to talk about solutions. And really, it is going to be government intervention. If you think about different industries There isn't really one that improves security or safety without strong government intervention. Traditionally, the computer industry has been very much government stay away, right? This this sort of libertarian, low government, we can do it all. And that worked great as long as it didn't matter. It was just about data. As long as it wasn't that important, you were able to say to government, stay away. As soon as the internet affects life and property, that's going to change. Okay, now
4: another area where um, politicians might change their minds, I suppose, is if there was a really uh, big cyber attack on a country. People have talked in the past about a digital Pearl Harbor. Do you think that's become a real possibility or don't the Russians like to sort of keep things a bit more
0: subtle and invisible than that? Well, that's the title of the book, right? Click here to kill everybody is the digital Pearl Harbor, right? Is that someone who's going to hack all the cars one morning. I think it is unlikely in the near term and certainly not nation states. For a nation state to do that, that is an act of war. That is killing a large number of some other country's citizens. That's not the same as hacking an election. That's not the same as hacking into a power plant to see if you can. That's actually causing damage. I mean, more likely, I think you're going to see fatality caused cyber attacks by non-nation states either criminals trying to figure out how to make money through it through some extortion scheme by non-nation state political actors like terrorists who who care less about the uh, ramifications so i think these things are coming but i just don't think there'll be governments unless it actually is accompanied by war if a country invades another country, there will be cyber attacks. I mean we saw that when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. There were cyber attacks associated with that. So in the future, any actual conflict will have a cyber component. Bruce Schneier,
1: thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That was Tom Standage talking to Bruce Schneier. Tom will be in New York City next week on Thursday, November the 1st attending The Economist's second annual Space Summit event. You can join 150 industry experts, incumbent and challenger chief executives, provocative thinkers, regulators, astronauts and academics who will be discussing the emergence of a developing global space economy. Go and visit space.economist.com to sign up and use the code ECONPOD to get 15% off when you do. Finally, tourism is causing unsavory problems on the world's highest mountain. As more and more people try to scale Mount Everest, one thing they leave behind poses a huge environmental risk their poo. I'm joined now by Caitlin Tosh to discuss the problem and the innovative solution that could stop it from getting worse. Hello, Caitlin. Hi, Hal. So, just how much poo are we dealing with here?
3: Basically, to put it in a number, um, last year there were 12 tons of poo that was taken oh from Everest God. Base Camp. Which is the same as approximately the weight of three elephants. So it's a lot. Everest
1: is a big place. And if you were, I mean, I think 12 tons of poo sounds horrific. But if you're being skeptical or cynical of this, you could say, why is this a problem? You know, Everest is a big place. You just sort of chuck it on a glacier, you'd be fine.
3: I mean, you shouldn't really chuck poo on a glacier. And that is exactly what is happening. So it's the way that it's being dealt with that's causing the problems, really. And I guess the easiest way to explain that would just be to say the process of what happens when it's being disposed of. When you go to the toilet in Everest Base Camp, you are producing waste and it goes into blue barrels that are basically makeshift toilets. And these barrels, once they fill up, are carried down to waste sites um, near the town of Shep, which is about an hour's walk from base camp. And when they're dumped into these pits, they're unlined, And the risk, therefore, is that they're going to be infiltrating the water sources. And then obviously that causes pretty serious potential jam- potential dangers and damages to the local communities.
1: And so has that actually been happening? Has the water system been contaminated by this?
3: Yes, no, it is causing some pretty serious problems. Tests have shown in nine of the local water sources, seven has some pretty serious levels of E. coli, um, which some of these water sources then feed into local wells, which people are drinking from. And then there's the obvious risk of diseases from that.
1: So it's not that people, are leaving poo on the mountain itself, it's that the system for getting it off the mountain leaves it in a bad place. So how can this be done better? What are what are some other options?
3: Well, there is actually one particular um, pretty innovative solution that is hopefully going to be put in place pretty soon. There's a initiative called the Mount Everest Biogas Project, led by two experienced mountaineers and engineers. And they've managed to create something called a biogas reactor, which is... A machine that exists already and is used worldwide already. The machine itself would create two usable byproducts. Methane gas, which could be used as fuel for something like cooking or heating. And fertilizer, which could be used in the many local farms.
1: This machine already exists, so what has been the difficulty in getting it on Everest so far?
3: The main issue is the climate and the conditions at Gorkshep, where they're planning on putting this machine. At high altitude, it's obviously very cold And for the reactor to work, temperatures need to be around 30 degrees Celsius. And the average temperature there is regularly below freezing.
1: Have they figured these things out? Is this about to happen or are they still working on it?
3: So they've spent the last few years really digging into this issue and trying to come up with a great solution. And they have. They now have a bioreactor that will work. And in order to do that, they've basically engineered this product that will use solar panels, to create heat in the reactor. And they're also going to dig a hole to put it in, which will make it a lot warmer and more insulated.
1: OK, cool. Well, Everest Base Camp, currently not on my list of destinations to explore the watering facilities, but that sounds like great progress. Caitlin, thanks very much for coming
3: on. Thank you, Hal.
1: And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Hal Hodson. In London, this is The Economist.